Welcome to Dangerous Christianity with Dr. Christopher Rodkey, where we explore new ways of being Christian that go against the grain, stands up against the church when it's evil, speaks truth to power, and reclaims the Bible as a radical message of hope, liberation, and justice. Dr. Rodkey is pastor of St. Paul's United Church of Christ in Dallastown, Pennsylvania, and leads the sacred profane community, a post-faith gathering for those seeking to nurture a literate and misfit geeky, sometimes sneaky, as well as a queer-affirming and beer-affirming spirituality. All information mentioned throughout the program is listed in the show notes. And now, please welcome Dr. Christopher Rodney. So a couple of people at St. Paul's have asked me to go back to the story of the Witch of Endor. And uh, I decided to go back to that because there have been several requests. Uh, a few years ago, we spoke about the Witch of Endor along with some other of the weirdest stories from the Bible. If you read First and Second Samuel together as a single story, the story of the Witch of Endor stands out as not really belonging to the rest of the story, it feels out of place, it sort of interrupts the action of the story, which is on the whole more focused on the rivalry between the young David and King Saul. If you study the Bible closely, you'll see that the later parts of the Bible sort of clean up the more gritty parts from the earlier books, especially in the Hebrew Bible. And the story of King David is one of the more notorious examples most of which are in the books of the Bible that are in the Catholic versions of the Bible, but not in our Protestant Bibles. So when the story of King David is told in those books, the book of Sirach or Ecclesiasticus, not only is the David story made a little more family friendly, it's a little more positive on David. Um, it does. It's trying to make David not look so bad in the story of uh, his relationship with Bathsheba. But the Witch of Endor is one of those episodes that's completely omitted from the story. We know that through the years, Jews and Christians have had a bit of a problem with this story, mostly because we don't like the idea of acknowledging that there is a such thing as witches or that witches have any power. So to make sense of this story, let's give the story some context. Context, And I want to go back to the story of Solomon. Solomon is an important prophet, and he gives some good advice to King Saul in battle with some very specific instructions. And Saul doesn't follow through with the instructions completely. Samuel is so grieved that King Saul disobeyed the orders that God gave through him. And if we turn to 1 Samuel 15, verses 35 through 16-2, we read the following. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. So even though God anointed Saul the king, he was disobedient and tells the prophet Samuel that he rejects him as the legitimate king and he has plans for a new king being sought. 
And God instructions to go instructs him to go to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, to find of his sons a proper king. And the true prophet of God never sees King Saul again, as God rejects him as the proper king of God's people. The literary symbolism of this of this episode is important that God's anointed would be found in Bethlehem, just as Jesus was found in Bethlehem. Jesse has eight sons, and he presents his seven oldest to the prophet Solomon, and he prophesies that each one of them is not the one chosen by God. Jesse says, my youngest is tending my flock, so he summons David from the field. If we turn to chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 10 through 14, you can read along with me. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers and in the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So God is struck by David's beauty and God proclaims him to be anointed and Jesse anoints him. King Saul then can feel that he's no longer chosen by God and he is depressed. He has a bad headache. He asks for a musician to come in to soothe him. And someone in the court says, I've heard Jesse's youngest son playing the lyre. Let us bring him here. And orders David to come and play the harp for him. Following the story, David's musicianship so soothes the king of his headaches that the king enters David into his court as an armor bearer, which would have been very typical that warriors, warriors or soldiers, especially royalty or high-ranking military men, would have young boys who would travel on the road or to war with them to help carry their stuff. Sometimes these boys were indispensable parts of military service. Even though they had no status and otherwise, they were seen as objects to be exploited in any number of ways. After David defeats the giant Goliath, which is found in 1 Samuel chapter 17, if you want to sort of skim through the story as I'm walking through this chapter, this book of the Bible, the story of David and Goliath is a story that I remember being told to me over and over again in Sunday school as a child. David and sons, Saul's son, Jonathan, um, become very close, even to the point of Jonathan pledging allegiance to David by taking off his clothes, and he gave his, the clothes to David, including his sword. David then became known as a fierce warrior and was so attractive that the women would come out of their homes to throw themselves at him and on his way from battle. That is in 1 Samuel chapter 18. As a result of David's fame and attention, along with it, jealousy of the relationship brewing between David and Jonathan, King Saul gets jealous and he gets angry. So he decides to give his eldest daughter to David in marriage in exchange for continued military service in a war campaign with the Philistines thinking that it would be only a matter of time that the Philistines would kill him in battle. But before the wedding, he realizes this would put David in a position to become king after Saul's death. Uh, 
So he pulls his daughter out of the wedding arrangements and gives her to someone else to marry. Saul's other daughter, Michal, apparently had a thing for David. So that when King David, or when the king discovered this, he offered this other daughter to David in marriage in exchange for military service. And David refuses to marry her because he could not pay a dowry for her. So the king makes an offer. If you bring me 100 foreskins of the Philistines, that would be a sufficient dowry. The plan was that if the Philistines would not simply give their foreskins and David would die in battle, it would seem that David didn't have much of a choice. His military service was at the pleasure of the king, and the king was making him an offer that he couldn't really refuse. So David goes to battle. He kills 100 Philistines, brings Saul their foreskins, and marries Michal, who was again King Saul's daughter. As a result, the king fears David because he actually did this, and David becomes his enemy from that point forward. Continuing in 1 Samuel 18, Saul brings the first of many plots to kill David, and he's betrayed by his own daughter in saving David. Even though we know from the story, Michal and David's relationship wasn't exactly the best. David goes into hiding, but David and Jonathan meet in secret to maintain their relationship and they pledge themselves to each other again. So in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 30, it becomes Saul becomes even more enraged, and we see a glimpse of someone getting desperate in his anger. And this is an important theme here. He curses the mother of Jonathan, his oldest son, in a pretty serious way. So this rivalry continues and escalates into a military campaign and hunts David down and hunts down his entourage, and they're hiding in a cave. Then in 1 Samuel 24, while hiding in the cave, Saul has a thousand men on the hunt, and he, and seeing, seeing the cave, Saul says, this looks like a good cave to go to the bathroom in, so he goes to the bathroom in the cave. Apparently, Saul was very deep into a meditative state while in the cave, perhaps doing some heavy thinking, that David is able to sneak up on on Saul, and instead of killing him, he cuts off a piece of his robe. After Saul is done going to the bathroom, David approaches him and shows him that he cut off a piece of the robe, saying, I could have killed you, but I decided not to because he didn't want to offend God by committing regicide or the killing of the king, since God anointed Saul the king. David won't kill him because he's the king, and it would be just wrong to kill a king, he says. You're, you're still number one, even though I snuck in while you were doing number two. After this conversation, they make, to, make a pact to call off the violence, but it's short-lived. Now, in the meantime, moving forward in 1 Samuel chapter 25, we're told that the prophet Samuel died, never having never spoken to King Saul ever again. But Saul continues to make attempts at David's life, and David again flees. And then at the end of chapter 26, they make peace again. But in chapter 27, moving along, David realizes that Saul is getting more and more desperate to kill him. And he decides to travel across enemy lines to meet with the Philistines and joins the enemy army, becoming the personal bodyguard of Ashish, who was the Philistine king of Gath. So King Saul was a desperate man at this point who has found himself at war with David, and Saul knows that David is a threat to his station as the king, but may not really know that God has anointed David as the true king. Saul would know that he had been disobedient to God because God's true prophet never spoke to him ever again. Now we finally come to the story of the witch of Endor, 
which begins with a reminder to us that in the mix of this complicated story that the prophet Samuel died and Saul never spoke to him again after disobeying God's orders. If you turn to chapter 28, we'll begin with verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. Saul had expelled the mediums and the wizards from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, not by dreams, not by Urim, or by prophets. So Saul had, following the laws of the Torah, thrown out those practicing things like astrology and mediums, those who can, can, can connect with the dead, wizards and sorcerers from the land. But when he got scared leading up to a big battle with the Philistines, Saul turns to God knowing that he has lost favor in God's eyes and he prays and he gets no answer. He has dreams that guide his way. No lower prophets would give him any help. And we are told that he consulted the Urim in verse 6. Now, usually the word Urim would be found with the word Thummim to describe what it is in the Hebrew Bible. And we're not exactly sure how Urim and Thummim worked, but what we know about it, it was sort of like, kind of like a dice or some kind of small trinket or totem, like a magic eight ball, maybe, that would have been used to answer yes or no to questions. I imagine its function was, again, like a magic eight ball or perhaps like a simple Ouija board answering yes or no. Now, scholars think this was a very simple kind of divination, and by the word divination, I mean this term as a way for God to answer questions or let God's will be known through some kind of instrument, um, a kind of divination that was practiced by the Israelite priests during this time, because we know that somehow whatever Urim and Thummim is, that its objects or trinkets were designed into the breastplate of the priest's formal clothing. In fact, it's mentioned earlier in the story that Saul consults the Urim and Thummim. This is in 1 Samuel 14, 41. And it seems like it was like throwing dice or perhaps some game involving casting lots. And usually the result was yes or no or guilty or not guilty. It's the sort of thing that we might associate with a fortune teller today. So Saul tries some divination technique that had worked before, but before it was with a priest and now he didn't get any answer. Now, when you're answering yes or no to flipping a coin or something like that, it's hard to not get an answer. But whatever he was doing with whatever this thing was, he did not get an answer. So he gets even more desperate. And I hope that you see the theme here building up as desperation. Turning to chapter 8, verse 7, where we left off. Saul then said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium so that I might go to her and inquire of her. His servant said to him, there is a medium in Endor. So Saul asked for a medium after he had kicked them all out of his land. He contacts a medium to contact the dead because he's desperate to talk to the prophet that never spoke to him again, and thereby giving him the impression that he is cursed. So he goes to Endor to meet this medium. Continuing in verse 28, 8 and 9. Again, in the book of First Samuel, the medium or the witch senses that she's being set up. So reading from scripture, 
So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes and went there so they wouldn't recognize him. And two men went with him. They came to the woman at night and he said, consult a spirit for me and bring up for me the one whom I named to you. The woman said to him, now this is the witch, surely you know that what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums from the wizards of the land. Why then are you laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? So again, the witch feels like she's being set up saying, I can be killed for asking you for for you asking me to do this task. Perhaps she was an active medium before Saul made specific decree to kick out all of the wizards and diviners. And instead of leaving, she went into hiding and stopped practicing or retired from it, gave it up. Continuing in verses 10 and 11. But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He answered, bring up Samuel for me. So here we have the king, Saul, wishing to speak to the prophet Solomon, who had previously stopped communicating with Saul after grieving his disobedience, hoping for communication with God or or to at least get back in favor with the prophet Solomon. Now, continuing in verses 12 through 19. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, have no fear. What what do you see? The woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the ground. He said to her, what is his appearance? She said, an old man is coming up. He's wrapped in a robe. So Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and did did, uh, uh, genuflect him. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more. Either by prophets or dreams, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you just as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and because of and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you today. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel along with you, you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. And the Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. So by saying the words, tomorrow you will be with me, the ghost is saying, tomorrow you will be dead like me. In verses 20 through 25, we can skim over, Saul collapses with these words and he refuses to eat. And the witch, probably afraid that Saul will kill her for not just being a medium, but also because she was a conduit of bad news. And he might think that she tricked him. But she feeds him and his entire entourage, and they depart for battle. In verse 31, verses 1 through 7, Saul's sons die in battle. And it's a tremendous defeat. Saul falls on his own sword, and his armor bearer, his assistant, commits suicide. It's worth noting that David, who was Saul's armor bearer, should have been there fighting with him on his side so that the tragedy of Saul is that he loses everything in his acts of disobedience. 
David, who did not fight that day, does not really come out as a victor in the story at this point, because the tragedy is also that he loses his best friend and his partner, Jonathan, as the book of 2 Samuel begins with David lamenting Jonathan's death. And the story follows, David should ascribe the kind of intimacy that he had with his friend Jonathan to God and to God alone. And there are several detours on this journey, most notably the story of him committing adultery with Bathsheba. So what are we to make of this weird story, this strange story of this weird character, the Witch of Endor? The traditional reading of the story focuses upon the ghost of Solomon, who's summoned from the dead, and the the pinnacle of the story is what Solomon tells him. Nearly every commentary that I have consulted wants to ask the question of whether this ghost is real or not. If the ghost is real, it would seem that it would validate the existence of ghosts. It's worth noting that in Matthew 14, in verses 25 through 27, the disciples of Jesus seem to believe in ghosts because they suspect that Jesus raised from the dead is in fact a ghost, but Jesus never corrects them about their belief in ghosts. In traditional Protestantism, evangelicals agree with John Calvin and Martin Luther that in their read that this story is that the ghost of Solomon was really a demon or an evil spirit because Saul was identified back in 1614, as we read before, as having an evil spirit over him. He then consults someone whose dark powers are evil, and two evil people together will do evil things. It's worth notice, noting that the ghost of Solomon prophesies and tells the future, and tells the future truthfully that he's going to die the next day. The witch is then scared for her life, and it seems to me that if she really feared for her life, she would have the ghost tell him what he wanted to hear so he would go away. It's easy to focus on the ghost business or the witch business of the story. I, for one, don't believe in ghosts, and I'm asked at least once a year by some anonymous phone call in the community here at the church looking for someone to spiritually, spiritually cleanse ghosts or demons out of their house. But I want to focus on the context of the story, which is why we spent so much time on the story around the story of the Witch of Endor. So as I keep saying, the main theme of the story is a man in desperation. Not once in the story of Saul, after he's lost favor with God, does he really repent of his wrongdoings. He just keeps going. And while in between the stories, life was probably pretty good for the king. He was, after all, all the king. It's good to be the king. And the pattern of events keep going into a downward spiral. We should not take this to mean that when we hit a pattern of bad luck that God's punishing us, but perhaps a better way of thinking about Saul is that his jealousy and anger toward David was brought upon himself. So let us think about Saul and the other characters here as rivals to each other or potential rivals to each other. Instead of the prophet creating a direct conflict with Saul, he simply ignores Saul going forward. Doing so brings David onto the scene, brought into a king's court as a servant, but he then becomes a rival. The king's son, Jonathan, becomes a rival with the king, his father, and even the king's daughter, who he gave to David, who, who was given to David as a scheme to kill him, becomes a rival with her father. David does not initiate conflict with Saul, nor does he kill him when he had the chance when Saul was alive. With David gone and Jonathan, as he believes, on the king's side, desperate, the king searches for his old rival, that is, 
the prophet, to return. Since things went bad for Saul after Solomon simply chose to walk away from him, perhaps some forcing Solomon to come face to face with Saul once again, even by calling his spirit back from the dead, might change his fortunes. And of course, that didn't work. So I ask you, have you ever met anyone who just thrives on conflict? Not someone who just enters conflicting situations all the time, but someone who creates conflict because that is the only way that person knows how to deal with people. We've all met people like this in the church, outside the church, pastors. I've met entire church communities who were in that mode and even workplaces or offices where it was kind of like the Hunger Games if you were trying to survive in its atmosphere. From a perspective of philosophy, it would seem to make sense that people like this, communities like this, seem to think that eliminating other people or going back to whatever the very first conflict was that spawned all of the conflict that came afterwards, if we could just go back to that one thing, it would all be made right and then everything else will be okay. The thing is that all this water under the bridge business is irrelevant and irreversible. It's not even an issue anymore in many conflict situations. Some people just like the conflict because they want to continue the conflict, and that's the only thing they know. The borders are black and white and easy to discern when there's conflict. Solomon avoided getting sucked into the conflict in our story by stepping out of it. And grieving, God asks him, why are you grieving? And he points him toward a new solution. David trusts that things are going to be okay as long as he's right with God and is defending himself in the story rather than always going on attack. Now, this isn't always to say that we should just avoid conflict or not avoid conflict. Sometimes avoidance is just as damaging as perpetuating the conflict. But we see the results of what happens when conflicts bring us down. Even to the point of consulting a witch to speak with someone from the dead, even when that doesn't go the way you want, the downward spiral of that path is pretty much a done deal for Solomon at that point. But he weeps and he throws himself on the ground and the king refuses to eat. As I said before, not once did the king seek forgiveness or reconciliation without secretly plotting revenge. Not once did he go to God with any sense of repentance and the will to work for real peace, and even realizing that his death was an eminent was eminent, did he seek a different solution to the problem? It would seem that Saul couldn't even see himself out of the path that he had set himself upon. Instead, we see the lessons of this story: be repentant, seek forgiveness. Act upon a spirit of reconciliation. Be genuine with peace and be genuine with your peacemaking. Seek out God more than you seek out yourself. And catch yourself when you're getting desperate. Or desperation will be the only thing that you'll ever know. Thank you for listening to Dangerous Christianity. For more information about how to get involved in the movement, how to contact Dr. Christopher Rodkey, or where to find information regarding his preaching itinerary, publications, or how to make a contribution to his ministry, please refer to the listed show notes. 
Dr. Rodkey again would like to thank all of his listeners for continuously supporting and tuning into his work and message. Thank you.